Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, please grab it and open to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter is a book that teaches us how to stand firm in the true grace of God, as Peter says in chapter 5, verse 12. It's divided into three parts. The first part reminds us of our identity in Christ. The second part teaches us how to live in before in the midst of a watching world as we go through trials and persecution. And the last section shows us what our responsibilities are as Christians enduring trials. And we come today to the very end of the book, the very last part of the last section, and we hear a clarion call for you and for me. God's word is for us, friends, an anchor on a coast of shipwrecks. It is the truth in a world of spin. Men died to give you this book. And so please hear it in love. Would you stand together for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 5, and I'll read down to the end of the book, which ends at verse 14. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Peter ends his letter giving us two very simple things to consider. Our responsibilities and our fight. Our responsibilities and our fight. Lower your head, look down at verse 4 with me. First, our responsibilities. We are likewise what? All of us are to submit to the elders. Now, last week, the sermon, if you heard it online, was essentially a sermon to the elders. It was a command for the shepherds of God's people. And one of the things I said last week, I want to say again, because I want to say it very carefully. There are men in this room, and there are men who are watching, who will be called to consider being an elder in our church. And right now, quite frankly, we need good men to help us lead. We carry burdens as elders that we desperately need help with because we want to share the burden with you. And some of you are well equipped to do that. And so men, would you have the courage, if the 
congregation nominates you, to be able to step toward that nomination and listen to the Holy Spirit calling you to the office of elder and wives of men who may be nominated by the congregation. Would you please encourage your men, your husbands, to step forward in leadership? So often the wives are timid. The men could be timid, the wives could be timid, but would you please listen to the Holy Spirit might be calling you to serve with your gifts to serve Christ's church. And Peter turns from the elders from verses 1 to 4, and he turns and he says, Likewise to all of you who are younger, submit to the elders. The word younger doesn't only connote age. As I said last week, an elder is generally somebody who is indeed older, but not explicitly so. And not exclusively so, because Timothy, of course, was a fantastic elder, and he was younger in age. But the command to all of us, Peter says, is to submit to our elders. And isn't this what we do whenever we take our membership vows? The fifth membership vow that we take in this church is, do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and its peace? And for some of us, it's a, it's a new thing to explicitly say before people when they join a church, I submit myself to the government of the church, but I just want to remind you that I would ask nothing of you that I also don't practice, that Pastor Scott also doesn't practice. Because while I am an elder in this particular church, you know that I am actually the younger one. I am one who submits also to elders. I also am under authority. I submit to a regional group of elders throughout northeast Oklahoma and northwest Arkansas and southwest Missouri called a presbytery made up of all the PCA churches in our area who have authority over me as a minister of the gospel. And so I ask nothing of you that I also don't practice. We submit ourselves because the Lord has called us to be shepherded. And even for the shepherds to be shepherded as Pastor Scott and I shepherd you. So likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That's responsibility number one. Got it? Got it? I think we're there. Okay, number two. What's our second responsibility? Our second responsibility, Peter says, is to humble ourselves. Peter turns to everybody and he says, hey, huddle up. Huddle up. Here's the play. Clothe yourself in humility. That's the play, Christians. That's the play you're going to run on first, second, third, and fourth down in this game. To clothe yourself in humility. And then he, he pulls, pulls the people of Asia Minor into the history of Israel by giving, reminding them of the proverb. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then he repeats himself. In verse 6 he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. And that is full of allusion back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Because Adam and Eve chose at the improper time to exalt themselves. You remember the story? Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil, and they thought, well, I can exalt myself here and now. I don't need to wait for the proper time. And so they, they ate the fruit, and they fell. And Peter here says to them, no, 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 let the Lord exalt you at the proper time because he is going to exalt you, as you'll read later. He'll confirm and strengthen and support you. He will give you everything you've ever dreamt because Christ accomplished it for you. To clothe yourself 
means that you intentionally let your clothes do the talking. Have you seen these t-shirts around town where they'll have like some witty saying on them? You know, have you seen some of these t-shirts? And they'll have just a simple saying, you know, you know, like Lauren, my wife has one that says, give them kale, right? You know, it's like it's about you know, feeding your children well. Right? And so they have these simple t-shirts with, with, with sayings on them that are really popular right now. Do you know what they call those? Humble tees. That's what they're called if you look them up. They're humble t-shirts. Why? Because fashion designers know that your clothing does the talking. Anybody who's into fashion knows that your clothes are the secret language of your life. And you communicate a lot about yourself based upon what you wear. And here Peter is saying, you want to communicate who you are? You clothe yourself with humility. Whatever else you have on, you want to put this on first. The word for to clothe yourself with humility comes from the Greek idea of a servant putting an apron over his clothing in order to go to work. It's the same thing you see in John chapter 13 when Jesus donned the towel to wash the disciples' feet. It's this idea that you put on an apron, an apron of humility to go and be a servant for others. And Peter recalls the reader's minds back to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, that says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he is reminding people that if you are going to practice humility, you've got to get your eyes off yourself, and you've got to see yourself, number one, as part of a much bigger story. You are a part of the covenant people of God. So what is Humility. Humility is not to think less of yourself, it's just to think about yourself less. Humility is, let's define it this way, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Isn't that simple? Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's a simple definition. It's extremely hard to apply. But to assess ourselves accurately in in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness means that we have to take our eyes off of ourselves and see whom? To see the holiness of God. Tim Keller says in that little book I saw some of us looking at him this morning, out on the the entrance table, Tim Keller says in that little book, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness, that in traditional cultures, we tend to think that our problem is that we have too high self-esteem. We think too highly of ourselves. The reason why there's domestic abuse, the reason why there's crime, the reason why there is such flagrant uh, um, um, sin in the world is because we have hubris, the Greek word for thinking too much of yourself, being inflated with self. And in contemporary cultures, we, it's often said that the problem for us is just the reverse, that we have too low a view of ourself. And so the reason why there is, uh, why you're struggling with the sin that you are is because you have too low a view of yourself. Or the reason, the reason why you get angry so quickly and so easily is because you have too low a view of yourself. But I just want to remind you that we are so, so saturated in this kind of self-esteem culture, whether you private school, homeschool, or public school your kids, you are saturated with it. Because if you look at Webster, how does he define humility? Well, Webster would define humility this way. He would say, humility is defined as a modest or low view of one's own self-importance. Even in the very definition of 
of what Merriam-Webster gives us, it is just shot through with this kind of self-esteem language. And what Scripture says about humility is that you can't properly pursue humility. It's the only characteristic of your life that you actually want to obtain, but you can never proclaim you have it. Calvin said that it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such a contemplation to look into himself. A proper amount of self-esteem is not the solution or the goal of humility. Paul Tripp says that my self-perception is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me to see. Humility is not obtained merely by self-examination. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, Paul says. What is he trying to say? He's saying that I am not even thinking about myself. I'm pursuing the service of others for the sake of the gospel. And guys, listen, I know that's, that sounds esoteric and hard to do. But we all, self-included, are so infatuated with social media. with our, like, You think about yourself like 90% of the day. And what Scripture teaches us is that we have to turn our eyes to see the beauty and the grandeur and the glory and the holiness of the Lord. And when you begin to get mindful of that, you're able to think of yourself rightly. And you don't think less of yourself, you just think about yourself less. And you give yourself to your spouse, and you serve your children. Why? Because at the proper time, what does Scripture say? He may exalt you. And you will never look back on any day of service to those around you and say, man, I wish I wouldn't have served them so well. The Lord will exalt you to a place higher than you can ever pursue with any amount of self-esteem therapy and help. Martin Lloyd-Jones once described it this way. He said, There is only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, we often sing, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but, but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. When I see that I'm a sinner, that nothing but the Son of, the God, uh, Son of God on the cross can save me, I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us a spirit of humility. The cross never flatters us, John Stott said. Far from flattering ourselves, the cross undermines our self-righteousness, and we stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. Because every time we look at the cross of Christ... Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you, John. I'm here because of you, Faith. I'm here because of you, Lauren. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. And it is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink 
to our true size. Notice Jesus, when he was on the cross, how focused he was on other people. John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. To the thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Even amidst the agony of the cross, Jesus was thinking about others. And he was thinking about you. Friends, let us stand as close to the cross as we possibly can, because it is hard to be arrogant there. Amen? So how do we do it? Notice the next line teaches us how to clothe ourselves with humility. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those are the instructions of how to do it. Peter, Peter's encouragement comes straight from Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be permitted to move. Notice again, Peter is very subtly taking these people back into the history of Israel and quoting from the Old Testament to remind them that they are part of something far bigger than just what's going on north of the Taurus Mountains in Asia Minor in the first century. And we are some, we are part of something far bigger than you could ever dream or imagine today as God's covenant people. He pulls you back into the history of Israel. And he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's precisely in these situations under persecution, under trials like this church found themselves in, for us to recoil and for us to pull ourselves alone and to isolate but Peter says, no, you go to the cross and you cast those anxieties on you. And anxiety, worry, is simply problem-solving gone awry. That's all it is. I mean, you begin to worry when you try to solve a problem and somehow that problem mechanism gets sidetracked. There, there are... Um, there's distinctions between thinking and worrying. Do you know this? Like, thinking is a good thing. It involves reflection and analysis. It leads to greater clarity and to intentional and purposeful action when such action is necessary. But worrying, on the other hand, is when the problem solving goes off track. And you start to be concerned over that issue. And you begin to take that issue, and rather than try to work toward a solution, you begin to wear it. You put it in your backpack, as it were. You burden yourself with it. You are weighed down by other people's expectations of you. You begin to worry what other people think of you. A problem you can't even solve by yourself, by the way. You begin to be burdened by these things. And so Peter, very practically, says to you, do you know how to get rid of those things? You cast your anxieties on the cross. If any of you have ever been in therapy or you've ever gone to a worrying clinic, if your anxiety has gotten so high that, that medication hasn't worked, there are places you can go in Arizona where, and New Mexico, and usually, usually most of these places are in the dry southwest, and you go and you spend days dealing with your worry. Just like if you struggle with alcohol, you go to get help with your alcoholism. And one of the first things these worrying clinics will tell you is that they will give you a very strict schedule. And on that schedule, there are periods of time for you to worry. And you schedule it into your day. And for some of you who are overwhelmed with worry right now in 2020, that's not, that's not bad advice. <laughs> To just find a part of your day when you say, you know what, for these next 15 minutes, I'm going to worry. And I'm going to name every single one of them. 
going to write them down. And then after that 15 minutes is over, you stand up. And you take that journal and you look at it. And you say, oh, King Jesus, help me now the rest of the day to cast every single one of these on the cross. And Peter knows that that technique works. And the gospel is not even about techniques. It's about a relationship. But look at how wise scripture is to give you wisdom on how to alleviate the anxiety you feel. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who knows everything about you. Not a hair can fall from your head without his sovereign command. He knows you worry about these things. He knows them. And he holds you in the palm of his hand and he sings over you and he says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. That's what I want. Parents, you know that when children worry, you want them to bring those worries to you and you want to comfort them. Your Savior, your Father does the exact same thing. So would you have the humility to bring your anxieties to Him? That's the first response, the second responsibility that we have. Submit to your elders. Clothe yourselves with humility. Casting all your anxieties on him. The, the third and fourth commands come to us in rapid succession here. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Both relate to a mental state. Peter uses the term nepho, which is the Greek term for sober-minded. It is the opposite of a state of drunkenness. It is to be sober, to be clear-headed, to think well, to be able to have a mental state free of congestion or confusion. It's to think clearly. And in a voice, in a world of many, many voices, the way that we as Christians begin to think clearly is you saturate yourself in God's word. You read it and you get reoriented to the worldview of the gospel that allows you to assess the truthfulness of the voices that are coming your way. And they are coming fast, aren't they? The second word, gregoreo, which is a term that he uses to be on alert it is only possible if one is sober-minded to be alert. And he says to be alert and to watch for the Lord's coming. That's what he implies. Be alert. Watch for the Lord's return. You'll hear about that with Pastor Scott afterward in AM Discipleship. And here it is used particularly to watch out, not only to be alert for his return, but to watch out for the diabolo, for the devil. Now, Paul speaks of pride and humility, of watchfulness in Ephesians chapter 6, and Peter speaks of pride and humility and watchfulness here in 1 Peter chapter 5, and James speaks of pride and humility and watchfulness in James chapter 4, and then in all of those contexts, they also speak of the devil. Isn't that interesting? Peter, Paul, and James all clump these ideas of humility, pride, watchfulness, Satan, all in a very small portion of their writings. In a very compact way. They put them all together. Why? It, scholars don't exactly know, but it's not hard to presume that when Jesus was teaching these guys in his seminary, as it were, when he was teaching them, and Paul was learning from the disciples about the teachings of Christ, and when Paul saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, it is possible that Jesus himself taught about spiritual warfare in the context of humility and pride. And in Scripture, you see clear connections with humility and also the devil. 
Why? Because we, Peter says, are in a fight. And our fight is not with the devil per se. Jesus will take care of him once and for all when he returns. But Peter gives us an important but a passing commentary on the devil because our fight is to stand firm in the true grace of God, of which Satan becomes one of the players. The world, the flesh, are the other two. And notice what he says here. He says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He prowls. Satan has a doctorate in subtleties. I was telling Lauren this morning, I was literally at 734 reading over my sermon, and my phone buzzed. I got a text. And on that text was a, a text that simply said, uh, hot, discreet, and a website. And I just took that text and swiped over to my little red trash can and hit delete. And men, I don't know if you get these texts, but I have no idea how they even got my number. And they're texting me potentially porn. The subtleties of Satan. Even as I like literally am reading on my sermon about the subtleties of Satan. And I get a text across my phone. It was like, is this an ironic sermon illustration? Or is this really scary? I think it's probably both. He has his doctorate in subtleties. Thomas Brooks writes in an old book in the 17th century, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, that Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity... He will tempt them to deny God. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their knowledge be weak, he will tempt them to have low thoughts of God. If their conscience be tender, he will tempt to legalism. If large, to carnal security. If bold-spirited, he will tempt them to presumption. If timid, to desperation. If flexible, to inconsistency. If stubborn, to impertinency. Peter gives the illusion here of subtleties. He gives the illusion, he gives the metaphor of a lion, which goes back to what he talked about earlier as elders being shepherds. Satan is like a lion that is on the hunt, and he wants to devour you. Make no mistake about it, he wants nothing more than to destroy your life. And backcountry guides have told me over the years that if you're on a backpacking trip and you ever see a bear, anybody ever seen a bear on a trail? It's like, I would imagine it's horrifying. But they tell you that when you see a bear, you're to do certain things, and people will tell you that when you see a lion, these same principles hold true. You are not to run. Did you know that? Oh my gosh, please help me. You are not to run, but when you see a lion or a bear, you are to look as big as you possibly can. You are to stand your ground on that trail, and you are not to run, and you are to look big. And if you have a jacket, or if you have a coat, or you have a backpack or something, you are to take that backpack, and you are to wave it in the air, and you are to say, Hey! Hey! And you are to make as much noise possible, and you are to get as, you are to get as loud and as big as you possibly can. You are to clap your hands. And if that lion charges you, they will almost always bluff. Gulp. 
and you are to stand your ground, even if they charge you, zigzag at you. They will not attack you, they say on the first charge. And you are to stand your ground. Holy cow, can you imagine? But notice that what we read in Scripture is interesting. We are to flee from the world. You are to run like Joseph ran out of Potiphar's house. You are to deny the flesh, and you are to resist the devil. You're not to run from him, you are to resist him. And you are to resist him in the same way that we might say you resist a lion. What does that mean? You are to stand your ground. It says, Peter tells us that firm in your faith, you are to stand your ground. You are to trust that your Savior has bought you with his precious blood, and there is nothing that Satan can do to you except by the Lord's sovereign allowance. You are to stand your ground firm in your faith. And you are to do so knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers all throughout the world. So what does that mean for us? It means that when you are being attacked by Satan, when you are being oppressed, Christians can't be possessed by the devil, but they can be oppressed by him. When you are tempted in that way, whether it's through a fleeting text message that comes across your phone to be tempted, or it becomes something much more profound and chronic and systemic in your life. You are to stand your ground, but notice, you are to be as loud as possible, and most of you don't. Most of you, when the going gets tough, you pull back, and you get real quiet, and you suffer alone. That's the opposite of what Peter tells us to do. You are to go to your community group and you are to say, guys, I am struggling. Help me. Would you pray over me? You are to tell your spouse. You are to tell your, you, you are to tell your friends. You are to be as loud as possible spiritually so that other people will know that you're struggling and they will be brought in. That is the way that you are to resist the devil. And James 4 says, and he will flee from you. You look big, you don't run, you yell, you clap your hands, you get help. There is no duty we perform for God that sin does not oppose, John Owen once said. And the more spiritual or holy there is in what we do, the greater enmity there is against us. Thus, those who seek the most for God experience the strongest opposition by the adversary. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ himself, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen? And then Peter closes this book with a couple of very practical things. Number one, he says, by Silvanus. There's a lot of discussion amongst scholars about who Silvanus was, but suffice it to say, it is highly probable that Savannah was the one that Peter used to write this letter out for him as he told Savannah what he wanted to say. The Greek in 1 Peter is very good. The Greek in 2 Peter is very weak. And it's most likely that Silvanus used his own language to write out the Holy Spirit's words through Peter using a vocabulary and a language and a Greek syntax that was higher perhaps than a Galilean fisherman would have used, which Peter then did write and use in 2 Peter. And then he says, in Babylon, this is a reference to Rome. Well, some people would say, well, why don't you just say Rome, Peter? 
Well, it's possible that while Peter says we are to submit to the governing authorities, it's possible that Peter didn't want to draw attention to the church in Rome at the time because of the persecution that was beginning to happen under Nero. And so he uses the metaphor. He uses symbolic language of Babylon. He does it twice in this passage. He says, Mark, my son, who wasn't literally his son. John Mark was his friend, but he was a son in the faith to him. And he calls the church a she. And so Babylon refer, refers to Rome. So, in conclusion, Peter, who's writing from Rome, through Silvanus, concludes this book by highlighting our responsibilities, to humble yourselves by casting all of our anxiety on him, to be sober-minded and to be watchful, because we are in a fight to stand firm in the true grace of God against the devil's schemes, knowing that there are others out there who are fighting to stand firm throughout the world, and the God of all grace, friends, as we fight, and we finish 2020 well, as we fight, the God of all grace, who has called you to his glory. Amen? He has called you. You have an inheritance that is undefiled and kept in heaven for you. He himself will restore you. He will confirm you. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. To him be the dominion and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to cast our eyes on Calvary, where your Son bled and died for me.